We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month which obviously no pressure whatever you've got we are so appreciative to have but we have awesome gifts for you if you want a hand addressed letter from morgan and isabeau maybe with some special whoa stickers other merch just uh, visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About diaphanous one-shouldered gowns. About fantasies. About highwaymen. About that strangely sexy, maybe controversial dimple in a chin. About just the tip. (laughs) But mostly, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And... Ourselves. <laughs> I think that was one of the better ones. That was really good. I, I hope so. So this week, we are continuing our impromptu novella November by reading a book that was free. Yes, free. Gratis. And it was called Goddess Abducted. By Scarlett Peckham. You got it. <laughs> so if you haven't downloaded this book for free. You should. You should. What do you have to lose besides memory on your digital device? (laughs) Nothing. Nothing to lose but memory on your digital device. Where do you want to begin with this? Should I read the back of the very short book? I think you should. All right, here we go. A woman disguised as a goddess is abducted by high women, leaving an all Hallows Eve ball. That's a classy way of saying Halloween. But when her captor attempts to extract his ransom, she has a demand of her own. A night of undisguised passion. (laughs) Now, a year ago or years ago, Isabeau and I both publicly said we would never talk about a Scarlet Peckham book because we liked them too much. Mm -hmm. And Scarlet Peckham is a friend of the show. She's she's been uh, listening and commenting on our Instagrams since the beginning yes this is a mutual fan uh thing that we have she introduced us to whitney my love and we had an amazing two-part discussion about it yeah and uh we don't generally like to discuss friends of the pods books because that feels uh incestuous in the non-sexy way that game of thrones did this season so but also all season Uh, all seasons incestuous in a sexy way Mm -hmm. is uh the implication (laughs) Correct. You're not wrong. We don't want to. We, you know, we we 
actually do, in spite of all of our like bumbling misgivings, we actually do try to carry ourselves with a bit of integrity. No such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> no such thing as a free lunch, but there are free books. And consider this our work towards transparency. Scarlett Peckham's a friend of the pod. She's been on the show before. We like each other on Instagram and IRL. Um, not that we've ever met on IRL. No. And we've read all of her books. We have. And in my case, I have reread them because I love them. I don't reread books because it makes me feel weird like FOMO weird okay I get that yeah I think I've talked about not rereading books in the past anyways I have enjoyed them now here we go lots of people who professionally review books and romance professionally review the books of their friends okay and like their friends friends you know what I mean like they've hung out together and picked up each other's checks at the bar you know what I mean And they're publishing these quote-unquote critiques in big places. Yeah! So what the (laughs) fuck we're going to do for a novella? That's free. Yeah, that's free. And let's be real. Isabel and I, we appreciate all of our patrons who make our show more and more possible every single day. And we try to be responsible book borrowers and, you know, check things out from the library. But sometimes we're a little bit hard up, not only for cash, but for time. When we decided to read novellas, one thing came to my mind because it it was the thing I knew we would both be reading. And now here we are. (laughs) Here we are. And we've been transparent. And hey, Scarlett, looks like we owe you something at the bar of your choosing and whatever future date we meet in real life. Or she owes us because we've bought her books. We have. But we didn't buy this one. Anyway. No. So this book was released right around Halloween, which makes sense because it takes place on All Hallows' Eve. And it's a like a 30-minute read. Yeah. Highly erotic. Highly erotic. Whoa. So this no short story. Micro novella. <laughs> is like playing on a couple of keys that have become super popular as of late. One of which is the Persephone key. The Persephone key. Mm. I blame Webtoon. Okay. I prefer that as the genesis of this uh, recycle of Persephone and Hades rather than whatever we read that was on Spotify and like broke all the records. Neon Gods. Why can I never remember that title? I, it's literally like a black mark in my mind i can't ever get it i think that came out after lore olympus yeah it did persephone and hades comes around and goes around people like it it falls out of favor people like it again well people like it right now god damn yeah they do it's because i think it and we talked about this in our episode on neon gods and i think we've talked about it before but there's like this um rescue of hades in the zeitgeist where he's much more like a loki character um but loki as played by tom hiddleston you know not loki the trickster god who is literally just killing people all the time And Hades is, like, not a super cool guy. And he did, you know, abduct and uh, hold prisoner and uh, rape Persephone. So, you know, Demeter was really justified in feeling bad and giving us winter. I've shared with you 
many a TikTok by this classics professor that I follow. Mm-hmm. And sorry, one of their beefs with the lore Olympusing. The original mythology is actually telling this nuanced tale about a mother and a daughter, and it's getting flattened to what was essentially a, a rape story is getting flattened into a, you know, will they, won't they romance, which is frustrating. But while this book, this micro novella has like shades of that it's inherently like resistant to it by based on the fact that like our main character her costume she understands it as diana right who's diana she's also uh artemis she's the virgin she's not princesses of wales no she's diana is the roman version of artemis the virgin goddess of the hunt and of uh purity and nature so her her vestal virgin gown is quite on the nose and good. Like, that's how Artemis and Diana are often portrayed. Just, like, beautiful huntress in white. I love that the character acknowledges that there were, like, four other Dianas at the Halloween party. Oh, totally. Very relatable. And then, like, her internality is she's like, I'll go as something gross next year, like a crow or a cow. <laughs> I was like, you're so funny. I'd hang out with you. <laughs> And this is essentially the the story is a woman leaves a Halloween party dressed as Diana, is abducted by this highwayman who thinks she's a much more wealthy woman than she is and holds her hostage and forces her to write a ransom note. But she's always had a thing for highwaymen, so she's very turned on by this. In actuality, it's all like a staged encounter. Is the spoiler alert. Yep. But the author, when uh, advertising this book, said, you know, definitely check out the trigger warnings or not if you don't want a story spoiled for you. And it reminded me of why trigger warnings are so helpful. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk a little bit about that because I feel like trigger warnings have been kind of like narrowly defined. As giving people the uh, an out, right? Like if they want to step out and not uh, consume a piece of media because it would be upsetting to them, they have that opportunity. And that's part of it. But I think like perhaps a more important part of it is that the people who stay in the room and watch the movie or read the story are now prepared for something that might upset them. And so they're able to see through the kind of inflammatory parts of it and perceive what it's meant to actually do. And that's what this trigger warning did for me. Like reading the opening of the story allowed me to comfortably enjoy what is like a baby bumpers bodice ripper essentially. For sure. I totally agree. This content advisory functions, as you beautifully just said, to make someone comfortable, right? Like I felt like the trigger warning put me in safe hands where I was prepared for whatever was coming down the pike and I understood its shape. Put me in the safe hands that are my own. Right. Exactly. Like I I can decide. Yeah. I get to make that choice. 
because the author gave me the that opportunity. I remember watching a movie in my undergrad and the <laughs> film professor tried to prepare us for everything in the movie. She did like three quarters of the job. Like she was like, there's going to be incest and there's going to be child abuse and there's going to be emotional abuse and there's going to be like gross spiders crawling everywhere, right? And she prepared us for all of that. We watched the movie over two days, over two class periods. And then on the second day, there was this horrible scene where they, like, abused a cat. Ugh. And it was like, no one could talk about the movie after that. But because we had been prepared for, like, the other stuff, we had been able to talk after the first day. Mm-hmm. And then the second day, it was just like stagnant, like everyone staring into the middle distance. But if we had been prepared for that, you know, we could have been prepared for that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I'll, I, I think this functions both in literature and in film, but also in real life. Um, yeah. Without giving too much away, my sister lives in Montana and is much more outdoorsy than I am myself. <laughs> And when I was a youth visiting her, uh, she used to do this thing that I absolutely hated. Uh, And she swears that this isn't true, but it totally is. Where she would tell me that the hike was almost over, but we had like two and a half miles more to go or like more. And it's like, that's not actually helpful by saying that it's almost over and we still have all of this ground to cover. It's going to take us another like two and a half hours because we're going straight up and then straight down. I it's if just if you just prepare someone, then they have the mental capacity to like ration out their water and their intake and also their like capacity to know about terrible things that happen to a cat. I was forced to watch um a clockwork orange as like a test of being a cool girl with zero trigger warnings. And I was like, I can't be cool about any of this. All of this is terrible. But if somebody had been like, hey, this is a really violent film that is supposed to be talking about violence and misogyny in particular, and it like is do- trying to do these things through these like really specific terrible scenes, like you should just know that going in. I think I probably would have been able to understand that film filmically rather than just like the experience of like I am just being traumatized by this movie and this person who wants to know whether or not I'm cool and I'm deciding in this moment that I hate everyone and especially boys so and there are like wretched people who would be like oh you have to experience a clockwork orange raw yeah gross why this is not helpful they didn't make it raw (laughs) like what am I Like, I have nothing but respect for people who insist on spoilers. I think that's such a sign of, like, understanding yourself and seeking out the best possible life. Mm-hmm. You know, in this book, like, the spoiler is that it's consensual and it's safe and it's planned and it's discussed, which I think is also lovely. I think we've talked about it in the past, especially with Joanna Lindsay, where I was like, I think these people have rape fantasies and they just don't want to address that. I, In hindsight, that might be an oversimplification of what was going on with bodice rippers. That's certainly part of it. It's not the whole enchilada. And so I think like people who've expressed that there's not a capacity for these kinds of stories don't realize how easy and cool Scarlett Peckham makes it look with 
subducted where people are having fun with each other there's a flirtatious rakish highwayman but not only do we have the trigger warning at the beginning which you can read or not read right like you have also the choice not to read it we assume you've made the choice once you've come this far we did but like there is an opportunity for you not to and so one of the other ways that this micro novella shows its work and shows that you're in safe hands is there's one point where she's being abducted and she smells him and she notes that he smells of uh like this clean shaving lotion and she like recognizes the smell and so he's a clean highwayman apparently and i think that adverb did a lot of work in us then being like oh like this is she knows him she knows the smell she's like this is like now we're in on the joke and there's another point where he like ties the blindfold and he goes oh too tight (laughs) yeah there are lots of clues along the way that aren't just like winsome hero clues like true clues as to the fact well not the least of which is like the context of the charlotte street series in general right but yeah there were there were uh more than breadcrumbs uh to alert you to the fact that we are in a situation both of consent and care i've been thinking a lot about bodice rippers per usual have you indeed and I've been thinking a lot about dark romance. As defined as? Romance novels that deal with taboo subject matters in a literal sense. Got it. Okay. Continue. I used to think that taboo romance was occupying a space that bodice rippers used to occupy. I am less convinced of that. And I don't want to say like I'm fearful Of what taboo or dark romance is doing. But it kind of smacks of the like how porn searches have become more and more taboo and more and more extreme. But I feel like the nature of being like a woman who has sex in the world hasn't become all that much less taboo inherently. And so like why there's this like increased market for I'm worried that it's our internalized misogyny I guess that's making books between like 40 year old uncles and 15 year old nieces sell to be fair we did read a category romance from 1992 where that was like essentially the thing he was her future no he was her brother's father-in-law so i don't think like taboo romance or like what i would call like taboo adjacent like the 90s are are different countries they're just having straight up father-daughter <laughs> stuff happen sure now. they're not even putting the shellac of your brother's father-in-law right we're just calling it yeah. taboo yeah, romance yeah. And, and and talking about abuse yeah. I have equal qualms. And I think you're right to say that they're. I'm glad that we have evolved on the bodice ripper, right? I mean, the misogyny in it is. Pff, wow. <laughs> 
And have we evolved or do we just like seek it out in other more nuanced ways? Oh, that's not what I meant by evolved. I meant I'm glad that you and I have evolved as critical readers of romance to see what the bodice ripper is maybe doing outside of its misogyny or in tandem with versus this other thing, this taboo romance, which I... Right, because like when we're talking about a bodice ripper like Whitney, my love, or Shana, 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 um, Shana, we're talking about people writing in a time where women couldn't get credit cards without their father's or husband's permission. And I think like that just changes the way that you can talk about female autonomy and female desire just because of like what's literally going on in the system, right? So flash forward 50 years, women can get credit cards. And as you say, they can have sex freely. But whether or not the system itself has changed to accommodate or support that is up for debate, I think. And we're currently in a moment of backlash, which makes the taboo romance for me even stranger and potentially more problematic. Because backlash often comes with systemic regression. Well, and I I mean, there's a viral video of a guy going to the police to report a woman's father for threatening him because he was stalking her. And he explains to the police that, like, yeah, he, like, chased a woman who wasn't interested in him, but, like, lots of women have rape fantasies. And so, like, this, like, nothing happens in a vacuum. And so there are taboo romances, what are considered taboo romances that get published nowadays that are explicitly about rape. And then there's like abduction. There's stories like this, which are like abduction fantasies that clearly outline like a respectful and conscientious way of executing this that doesn't include a lot of ne'er-do-well assumption. Mm-hmm. Ne'er do well. Oh my God. But you know what I mean. We are evolved enough to know how to talk about these kinds of fantasies and work through these fantasies in a productive and harmonious way. I understand that there's still, that doesn't like preclude a place for literature and especially romance to like give us an outlet to express anxiety you know sexual anxiety but there's something I don't know there's something like nefarious and I don't know if it's my own personal squareness that makes taboo romance so like palpitating but I think when I read a story like this like I'm I get my trigger warning I see the right wink winks nudge nudges and I can enjoy like a story of an abduction and then sexual satisfaction but then I think that there is for sure a more extreme version of this and that more extreme version is maybe more mainstream that's interesting I'm I mean I don't we don't read taboo romance I certainly don't and I haven't encountered anything recently like published I would say in the last five years in mainstream romance that would qualify but you don't have to go back very far is the other thing. And I have not read everything that's been published in the last five years. So I'm willing to say 
caveat, caveat, caveat. And like, maybe I just don't know. My sense is that what is so charming about this micronovella is the wink, wink, nudge, nudges. Like you, you actually just never feel unsafe. Like the, the consent issue is just like constantly baked in. Uh, not an issue, but like the consent itself is just constantly baked in. Yeah, I don't know. I think there is something deeply troubling about the moment that we're in and this rescue of a rapist through Hades and these retellings and that like that like that there's a desire to like fix the bad guy versus like fix the system or the culture that rewards the bad guy. Just to jump into weirdest part, I will say my weirdest part is that I get the sense that this was originally a Hades Persephone story. And then something happened and it was edited and like she was given a bow and arrow and she was <laughs> Diana. I have no evidence for this besides a feeling. And even if there is like, even if it stops and starts and ends at my personal feeling, <laughs> the fact that a person in the year 2022 has a feeling that this is a, an edited version of a Persephone myth retelling is I think very evocative, right? Like that indicates that something is going on in the culture where like if we hear about like a goddess abducted, it's more than an assumption than it's that it's about a Persephone myth. Are are these all just Kylo fix? Everything's a Kylo fic. <laughs> and if it's not a Kylo fic, it's a Persephone Hades as Kylo fic. I was going to say, like, isn't Hades just Kylo in, in his modern retelling? There's, there is like an there is a like narrowing of the aperture mm, story. I think that is a beautiful way to articulate that. I, I feel like I feel like there are so many Persephone Hades retellings, which are like Beauty and the Beast retellings, which. We certainly read a lot of, but it's like that one kind of story that we're interested in. Women love a project, I'm told. And <laughs> there's nothing quite like the project of making a man, I guess. Um, well, there's also like... Um, it's redemptive. Well, Chell's ebooks has written about the fact that the bodice ripper one of the things that might be interesting about the bodice ripper is that it's it's an interrogation of the idea of a good victim mm. Mm. and what in womanhood makes you a good victim versus a bad victim and a reconciliation and and tumbling of that and i i see that I don't see it in this short story. I see this short story as a short, sexy romp. But I, I do see, like, this story is, you know, pointing or flicking its fingers towards a lot of other stuff that's going on in our cultural moment that is difficult. And I do wonder if, like, the traditional bodice ripper didn't leave a vacuum that has been filled by darker 
monsters. I want to say monsters, and I feel bad saying that, but that's how they feel to me. I don't know. I think I'll have to spend a little more time thinking about whether or not I feel like bodice rippers left a vacuum because my my initial thought is no, because bodice rippers evolved. But I don't know if that's actually true. I like I can't show my work on that feeling. Yeah, I I can't find an evolution. I can't find a shift. I can find a reaction. I can point to reactions and I'm thinking specifically of Johanna Lindsay, right? Starting with A Pirate's Love in 79 and then the one that she wrote about the time traveling Viking and then the um the one that the medieval one where she like the daughter wants to keep the castle and so has to marry the guy and like they like there's a it's a very lovely scene on the stairs with a cat like something about the heart um but like there's no bodice ripping there are definitely like scenes of uncomfortable sex but like Johanna Lindsay even within her move like she moves away from actual scenes of rape to scenes of uncomfort sex to then titillating like uncomfort sex yeah where it's like it's not it's not rape because both parties have agreed but it's not comfortable like it's it's not the first scenes of sex are not good right like because they're like duty bound or obligation or like wrapped up in making sure that the dynasty still works or whatever that's that's still rape though yes it is it's just different than like the earlier stuff where it it's violent versus the past the not passive but like the insidious violence of coercion uh of obligation you mean it's less explicitly rape yeah it's less explicitly rape it's that kind of gray rape that congressmen want to tell us about (laughs) no i wouldn't some girls rape easier no that's not what i'm talking about at all it kind of feels like that because it feels like saying Oh, it's not like someone was like, I mean, that kind of gestures towards that idea of like, what is a good victim? Where it's like, if you're super resistant to what happens to you versus like, if you're semi-compliant. Sure, I think there that's part of it. What The scenes that I'm thinking of in particular, especially in the book that I can't think of the title, um... It's like she wants to marry him to protect the house and the lands and whatever. And so she understands sex as a painful duty. And she understands that from everyone else. And he also understands that, like, whatever pleasure that they're going to get out of this is probably going to be one side. And he feels kind of bad about that. And, like, there isn't any affection at the outset. But they got to get this done to protect the land and whatever and stop the people from saying that their marriage can be annulled and so yes that is a rape of coercion but it's like a system thing rather than an individual thing which is about obligation and duty and less about i I guess it's the violence of obligation and duty and systems rather than like a personal kind of violence so no it's not about some girls rape easy and then where did it go from there they fall in love. Like, it's the... Um, well, no, I not, not in the story, but in, like, the arch of romance. I think we eventually just leave that, that at least in the mainstreams, like, 
I don't think we've read anything that Johanna Lindsay wrote right before she died. Um, but I think like the move then is from scenes of violent and explicit rape to scenes of coercion as uh, the first scenes of sex and then just leaving it behind and then getting to a scene of consenting consent from both parties at the outset. But we're not talking about a single author. We're talking about like the arch of romance. I think that's the arch. And of so romance. it doesn't really matter if we talk about a Joanna Lindsay, a recent Joanna Lindsay, right? Because we're talking about, like, authors in general. And sure. I think we can both agree that, like, explicit rape was pretty commonplace on the page. And I agree mm-hmm. with you. I think sex on the page, like, at least first-time encounters moved into something less, like, punching you in the jaw like dragging you drugging you to like oh i'm very drunk and now i can let myself express myself freely or like oh i'm obligated by my estate like those kinds of but i still think like that almost feels more insidious yeah i think it is insidious and then like i don't know where we went from there and i don't know if we really left it like what i'm saying is like did we really leave it behind? Did we really evolve? Or did we just like start like putting doilies on top of it? I, my sense from contemporary romance is that we have certainly shifted to opening scenes of sex have explicit consent, especially in the last five years, right? Like you and I have talked about on the show where it's like consent isn't a problem, but making it unclunky is. And like, We've talked about, like, I think mainstream romance has, like, moved, shifted at least, away from scenes of insidious coercion and scenes of rape. But, like, when we talked about um, that one book where he, they were very adamantly consenting, but he, like, called her baby girl throughout their sexual encounter. Like, that stuff is still there. For sure, that book sucks. Like, infantilization, (laughs) coercion. I don't remember her being coerced in that book. No, but there are books where it is, they get drunk, right? Mm -hmm. The first time they have sex. That happens frequently. And there is, for sure, a pretty, not insignificant collection of books that are called you know referred to as taboo romances that are largely self-published some won't even be sold on amazon because of their explicit nature and they are for all intents and purposes like pretty popular as popular as like a romance novel can be in this like highly segmented market that we live in i mean they're not in the spaces that i'm seeing in romance and you and i are in different spaces even like Colleen Hoover writes novels about abusers. She does, absolutely. Yeah. And she's sold more books than Dr. Seuss. And God. Yeah. Yeah. But up until recently, Colleen Hoover wasn't expressly writing or the the genre dynamics of Colleen Hoover were different. Like cause she's listed under thriller as often as she's listed under anything else. But like it ends with us is a romance. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it, so I don't know what it's about. It's a little hope floatsy. Oh, okay. Not in a nice way. There's a bad way to be hope floatsy. Yeah, you should talk to Rachel about it. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> Will do. Uh, yeah. Like, I think there's that vacuum, and I think it's getting filled in, like, I mean, I in hindsight, before we started talking about it, I was like, oh, it's getting filled by these taboo romances. But I'm like, I don't think it needs to be filled by these taboo romances. If anything, these taboo romances are just making explicit what's semi-implied by the mainstream romances. I'm going to keep thinking on this. All right. What's your weirdest part? <laughs> it's not as big or systemic as yours. Um, I thought it was weird that he had an old carriage that was badly sprung and that was how he was abducting her and that they took pains to say that his driver was going to help her down rather than our bandit also like what bandit has a driver who also happens to be irish like the details of the abducting vehicle uh were strange to me (laughs) do you think it was like a badly sprung carriage so as to make it more realistic for her, our main character, yeah, yeah, I think so, and I like, I like, like that's also weirdly charming. <laughs> it's like I'm gonna get the bad getaway car, so like I'm gonna like sell this bandit as hard as I can. Um, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so, what's your sexiest part? That's a great question, because this is so sweet and short and sexy, so sexy. Mine's the letter writing part. Oof. So which part? And I'm going to call that one so you can't take that one. Which part of the letter writing part? The whole thing. The whole thing. You're going to take it, all of it. Yeah. I'm going to take the letter writing scene as my sexiest part. All of it. Yes. Where our bandit holds his wiener (laughs) (laughs) as collateral for her to write a ransom note. God, that was sexy. I'm taking that whole part. All right. Well, if you're going to take that, I'm going to take the Burt Reynolds bed of furs. (laughs) Fine. You just took the whole letter writing in the table. It's like several blankets made out of skinned Burt Reynolds. And he just like, oh, God. And he takes her from behind and like just, oof. And they're on their side, so they're spooning in front of a fireplace on furs, on Burt Reynolds' furs. I know. It's very 70s. So good. It's very nice. Mm. Speaking of. Yes. Yes. Very 1970s. The bodice rippers, indeed. It it is evocative in all of the ways that I want a micronovella to be evocative. It made me titillated, it made me think, and it left me uh, feeling good. And clearly, it left me having a lot of thoughts with you. It's a it's a romance, obviously, and not just because in general we like Scarlet Peckham, which we do. <laughs> But not only like we would have we would have very dishearteningly ragged on this book if we had to. Or we just wouldn't have reviewed it and we would have found another novella. Yeah, we wouldn't have. Re- well, no, I think we would have because we don't have a lot of time to read other stuff. It's true. We're short on time. We're just really lucky that it was so good. I know. A hundred percent. I'm so relieved. I was so scared from the movie. I was like, this is going to be it. It's going to be Turkey Day Trist all over. <sighs> Sorry, turkey day trist. Just don't have sex in a twin bed. Ugh, like there are so many other childhood beds. Childhood shower. All right. Well. With that. Oh.
Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.